Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we come to you as people with all different stories, different journeys that we're on, different feelings in our hearts and our minds. But God, what makes us all the same is how desperately we need you. God, we need your light in our life. We need your word to guide us. We need your truth to break the chains that we were just singing about. Father, I give you this time. Lord, rid me of me. God, let me be a vessel of your word and your heart for us for today. God, let the word, um, let the words convict us where we need convicting, where we need to turn, where we need to change. And God, let the words encourage our hearts where they need to be encouraged. We love you so much. Amen. Good morning. I'm Lisa Stonehouse. I'm the Director of Discipleship and Care here at Harbor Life. If I haven't met you, I would love to. So afterwards, just come up and say hello, and I'd love to get to know you. We started this Renew series a couple weeks ago with the questions that I think we all ask through our lives. Can we really trust God? Is he who he says he is? Am I who he says I am? And those questions were answered with a resounding yes. Those are all true. We can. And Matthew invites us as we're walking out this life that we've been given to trust Jesus, that he is who he says he is. And then last week, I felt like it was such a simple but deeply profound message that I've thought about a lot this week. We read, From the time that Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Brent beautifully summed up, I wish he could hear this, but at the same time, he broadened my understanding, and I, I'm hoping your understanding, on what the word repent means. That it is simply turning and going another way. And then he talked about sin, where sin is missing the mark. I bought Gabe a dartboard for Christmas, and I have missed the mark a lot. I think Ellie is the only one that has got a bullseye. But that's what sin is. We're, we're missing the mark, and we can keep trying. And then he talked about Jesus' invitation for us to flourish when we follow him and his invitation. Brent and I had a conversation a couple years ago, and he used this metaphor that I've thought of over and over. And I think it's one of the most beautiful things or descriptions of heaven that I've, that I've ever heard. He said, heaven brushing earth, and he did this. And he used that phrase in his message that week, and I just keep thinking about it. It's so profound. I don't know if this world gets more beautiful than that. When we step into the invitation of turning, we see him and we begin to flourish. And we see that the kingdom of heaven is here. It's now. It's literally heaven brushing earth. This week, we're going to look at what I think are probably familiar words from Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, the Beatitudes. Brent's going to deepen that next week with more in the Sermon on the Mount. But today we're going to talk about the blessed are they phrases. 
I grew up at Byron Center First Reformed, and we did this thing called Children's Sunday. So every June, each Sunday school class would present a passage that they had memorized from the Bible that year. First grade did Psalm 23, second grade did Psalm 100, third grade did um, the books of the Bible. I don't remember what fourth grade did, but fifth grade, I mean, this is where you've arrived. You are so old at this point. We did the Beatitudes. So we'd climb up on the stage, just like the kids do here sometimes, and we'd rattle them off. Everyone clapped, and we sat down. And I really had no clue what I was saying or what Jesus was talking about in those blessed hours. There were a lot of strange words that didn't really seem to make sense. The first sermon that I ever preached was on, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We were in a series that fall called Upside Down, and it unraveled each of the Beatitudes, and it explained what Jesus was meaning, which was really different than what our modern-day interpretation or what we think it means. And that was really the first time the Beatitudes began to come alive for me. This next layer of understanding today feels personal, and I wonder if it will to you too. The Beatitudes, according to Matthew, mark the beginning of Jesus' public teaching ministry. They are the very first things that Jesus emphasized as he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, heaven-brushing earth. A couple weeks ago, Brent touched on some parallels between Jesus and Moses. So Moses, he was born under a violent pharaoh. Baby boys, Israelite baby boys, were killed at birth. He lived in Egypt. As an adult, Moses begins leaving the Israelites by stepping into the waters of the Red Sea, which was a sea that God had parted as they walked through as they headed toward the promised land, where they wandered in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, which turned into 40 years. But through Moses, God was going to rescue the Israelite people from slavery. And according to Exodus 12, they were slaves for 430 years. And then we have Jesus. He was born under a violent king. Baby boys under two were killed after he was born. He then escaped to Egypt with Mary and Joseph. As an adult, he begins his public ministry by stepping into the waters of baptism, where he is then led by the Holy Spirit into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And through Jesus, God is going to rescue the Israelite people and us from our slavery to sin. Matthew is not even being subtle here. His point is Jesus is the new Moses. And just in case we're not getting this, between the Old and the New Testaments, there's a blank page. For us, it's a single, meaningless page, the dividing point between the old and the new. But for the Jewish people, this page represented what they referred to as 400 years of silence. For 400 years, they believed that God had stopped speaking to his people. There were no prophets. There were no songwriters. God was silent 
for 400 years as Rome slowly, bit by bit, enslaved them once again. And then Jesus was born. But Jesus doesn't begin his ministry until he's how old? Luke tells us Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. What's 400 years of silence plus another 30 years of silence? 430 years. And how many years was God silent while Israel was enslaved by Egypt? 430 years. That is bonkers. Except it's God. And that's Matthew's point. Jesus is the new Moses. I think that is so incredible. I think how God has woven history together is awe-inspiring. God is in the details. Okay, this is a super quick sermon in a sermon. This is a really important, precious reminder that just because you feel that God is silent, it doesn't mean he doesn't care. God was silent in the years leading up to Moses. God was silent in the years leading up to Jesus. But God didn't stop caring for his people. For those of you who are wondering, does God see me? Does he even remember me? For those who feel that God has disappeared, you haven't felt him at all lately. I've been there. I think if we're being honest, we've all been there through seasons of our life. And while it's tempting and our human selves think that God has disappeared, don't mistake God's silence for his apathy. He knows us. He sees us. He has a purpose for us. He is for us. Okay, end of super quick sermon. Back to today's message. But I felt like that was so important. So, but unlike Moses at Mount Sinai, Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount not with commandments, but with promises of God's blessing and the attitudes and postures of our hearts. Jesus began focusing on the heart, doing heart surgery, wanting to reconstruct our hearts and bring our hearts in tune with his. Every word Jesus said was intentional. It was full of life-altering wisdom to live by, not just rules to religiously follow. From the description in the Gospels and the geography of Palestine, we know that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount along a road that skirts the Sea of Galilee between Tiberias to Metula. Carter, can you put up the first map? The picture, perfect. So if you take a good look, it's really not much of a mountain, right? But this is another really cool thing. Matthew is writing to the Jews, but in Luke's gospel, he refers to this same teaching as the Sermon on the Plain, more of an in-between, kind of a foothill. Because Luke was writing to the poor, he was literally trying to level the ground where the stories took place. And Matthew was writing to the Jews, and people would have understood the law and the Ten Commandments. And he wanted the people to think of Moses going up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. So he had Jesus going up on a mountainside to give the new law. 
Don't get me wrong, the Ten Commandments are beautiful and really meaningful and from God, and following them will help you flourish and most likely keep you out of jail. But Jesus, like he loves to do, takes it a step further. The Beatitudes describe the foundational character qualities that Jesus wanted to be thriving in the hearts of his people. A way of life he was inviting us into. So on this hill, a mix of a mount and a plain, this is how it starts. Matthew 4.23 Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Can you do the second map? So this area outlines all the places that we talked about. So it completely surrounds where Jesus was, and he's at the top that the Sea of Galilee up there, Jesus was alongside there. So all of those regions had come, the Bible says, to hear this man. The crowd, they show up to see him, apparently, because word had gotten out that he was a great teacher or healer. Jesus has announced that the kingdom of heaven has come near, and now he is enacting it. And the list of those who have come to see and experience is fascinating. Galilee was largely poor. They were people who were paying huge taxes to the Romans, and they were law-observing Jewish people. The Decapolis were Roman and Greek, so mainly Gentile, and a Gentile is a non-Jewish person. Syria was mostly pagan. In Jerusalem, that was the more religious elite Jews, and Judea was a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And the region across the Jordan River is Greek and Roman. So that is a crazy potpourri of people from all walks of life. And then, on top of people from all walks of life, it lists people with sicknesses, disease, demon-possessed, paralyzed, seizures, those kind of people that have to keep living outside of the margins, on the outskirts of a community, those that the rules required to keep at a distance because they believed that they were cursed or sin-filled or dirty. This gives us an idea of who's coming to Jesus, who's following him, and who Jesus heals. People with such different stories and such different walks of life, all in need of Jesus and his invitation to live differently. Verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So just picture that hilly place. I have no idea how many people there were, but it sounds like there were multitudes. You were probably sitting near someone that you'd usually not brush shoulders with, or quite frankly, probably choose to not be with. You can smell the sea, feel the warmth of the sun, people murmuring with excitement about this carpenter-turned-preacher. What was he going to say? 
you would lean in, wondering and waiting to see how Jesus was going to respond to all these people from all these walks of life. What could he even say that would, have, that would matter or have meaning to everyone represented here? I love how the Bible says, he sat down. When I'm going to have a purposeful, intentional conversation with someone, we sit down. We stop the rest of the world and just sit. It shows that they matter. It shows that what's on your heart matters, and it shows that what's on their heart matters too. Jesus is intentional with his heart and his invitation. And I think it shows that he wasn't in a hurry. This is what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed. We hear that word so often today. Bless their hearts. Um, Have a blessed day. Let us say a blessing. One of my favorite scenes from a movie is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when Aunt Grace prays and he's like, the blessing. So we know that word. The words blessed, blessing, are thrown around in everyday conversation. So when we read about the blessed ones in the Beatitudes, the impact of the concept of blessing gets lost in translation. We could use it to describe anything to how we feel after a relaxing vacation, a good job, our family, maybe a feeling after a great time of devotions that we had, right? Hashtag blessed. But what does Jesus actually mean when he says blessed? The word blessed, translated from the Greek, is the word for divine joy or happiness. Jesus is speaking the universal language and longing that every person has that has ever lived on planet Earth. He's answering a question today that is as relevant as it was 2,000 years ago. It's as relevant to every person in this room as it was relevant to the villager who stumbled on that hill that day. We all long for personal happiness in our lives, in our families, our jobs, in every area of our life. And usually that happiness that we are longing for or striving for is personal. We want it. The mantra of this world is, I want to be happy or I'm not happy, or if I do this, I'll be happy. To be honest, it's so hard for me when I hear people say that 
Because those words have impacted my life negatively in a profound way more than once. And the fruits of those walking that out, walking out their new happiness, is everything but happy. It's a lie from the enemy. I can promise you that one more look on a website one more impulse purchase, one more drink, one more flirtatious conversation will not bring you the kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about. And this is where Jesus flips it. He addresses them and he addresses us in that universal quest we are all in on some form or another to be happy. Jesus tells us that being truly happy or blessed does not come from our circumstances or the thrill of trying to satisfy our flesh. It comes from the posture of our hearts, how we walk out our lives. If it weren't for God's grace, no one would actually be blessed. The Beatitudes aren't a judgment against us who fail to measure up, right? Remember, missing the mark but instead, they are a blessing for anyone who gives themselves to join in God's kingdom as it comes near. In other words, Jesus was saying, divinely joy-filled, happy people are those who possess and live out these inward qualities. That is what he is inviting us to step into. Jesus gave his disciples and the people on that hill a new law, new rules to guide their life. And these rules aren't rooted in do-nots, but in you-ars. The new rules start with a declaration of who you are because it's out of who we are that we can live into who we can be. Jesus says, do you want to be happy? Well, here is how you will truly find deep happiness, to be filled with that divine joy. You will be blessed when, and that is what the Beatitudes answer for us. How we can walk through everyday life to be happy, joy-filled people. Jesus speaks blessing over the very spaces of our lives where we feel most empty. Listen to how the message says it. You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You are blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. 
You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For even though they don't like it, I do. And all of heaven applauds. God declares how to find happiness, joy unspeakable, a blessing, a sacred delight. It's not a gimmick to give us goosebumps or a mental attitude that needs to be pumped up. No, Matthew 5 describes God's radical reconstruction of our hearts. God is meeting people, all people, right where they are, exactly as they are. There is no earning, no winning, no striving or gaining. There is simply his embrace. There is love and grace. And it's his divine goodness absorbing our emptiness and our brokenness. This word is radical. It's upside down and it's laced with undiluted grace. And who heard these words? A mishmash of humanity, some who had just been healed. They were hugged by Jesus' words. They were loved and they were let in on something to belong to. We recognize our need. We're poor in spirit. We repent. We turn from our self-sufficiency. We mourn over that. We quit calling the shots. We become humble. We're so grateful for his presence that we just yearn for more. We hunger and thirst. We forgive others. We're merciful. We change our outlook. We're pure in heart and we see God. We love others. We're peacemakers. We endure justice and we're persecuted. This is no casual shift of our attitude. It is a demolition of the old and a creation of a new. The more radical the change, the greater the joy. And it is worth every single effort. For this is the joy of God, a special blessing, a sacred delight. As I thought about it this week, I wondered if Jesus starts his ministry with these words, do this and you will find deep, unwavering happiness, true happiness, because he knows us so well. He knows our human hearts. He knows how easily we are satisfied with things of this world. He knows that we put ourselves on the throne of our hearts, of our lives. But this is a better way. It's the way. It's upside down and inside out to how we think and how we feel. And it goes against the natural tendencies that we humans have to miss the mark. But Jesus is inviting us, welcoming us, promising us, posture your heart to do these things, and you will find 
deep, true happiness, divine joy, you will find me. The way of Jesus is going to change your life and bring you fullness of joy. Jesus meets us right where we are, always, because he knows us intimately. He knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He even knows the hairs on our head. He meets us where we are, not with more do's and don'ts, but with you are. And he does this because he knows us and loves us, and he longs for us to flourish. He is inviting us to step into a life of joy unspeakable. The way that Jesus is inviting us into is flourishing. When we step into this way of life, this is what will bring us true fulfilling happiness. This will bring us rest and joy and peace, not the things of this world. When your spirit is fading, remember, the kingdom of heaven is already here. It's brushing earth. When your grief is overwhelming, comfort envelops through the living God. When you harness your strength through meekness, your inner strength is coming from him. And when you thirst for righteousness, he will fill you. When you show mercy and grace and kindness, that mercy will come. When you open your eyes and come with a pure heart, you will see God. He shows up over and over and over. When we're persecuted or hurt or insulted or left or lied about, he is with us. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit to fuel every minuscule moment that makes up our lives. You need him, and I need him. I am convinced that our self-sufficiency, our throne of one heart, our I've got this, I can do it attitude, breaks the beauty of this blessedness in our lives. I know I am not happy when I'm living for myself. When the choices I make are to serve and honor me. When my choices or my attitudes don't reflect the way that Jesus laid out for us and is inviting us into. Each attitude and heart posture that Jesus calls blessed is an exercise for us to call on the name of God for help. We don't have to struggle for solutions. We don't have to have all the answers. We are at the height of holiness when we declare that we need Jesus at the center of our lives of everything we say and everything that we do. That is where we are sanctified. That is where we flourish. Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount is that God is our Father who sees us and cares about our hearts. He knows that we desire to be happy, and he gives us a better way. He is inviting us to lay down our quest and our search for happiness, and he says, I have a better way. His invitation is to step into something new. This is the scandal of grace. Remember, you are this. Now live like it. 
This matters because as we are following Jesus' teaching and leading, we have to consistently rethink so much of our previous understanding. That's that turn and go the other way. He's inviting us to change our thinking, which is at the heart of the word repent. At each turn, as followers of Jesus, we grasp more and more and more what his word means. And we rethink who Jesus is in light of what God's word is saying and doing in us. The Passion Version says it this way. What happiness comes to you when you feel your spiritual poverty? For yours is the realm of heaven's kingdom. What delight comes to you when you wait upon the Lord? For you will find what you long for. What blessing comes to you when gentleness lives in you? For you will inherit the earth. How enriched you are when you crave righteousness, for you will be satisfied. How blessed are you when you demonstrate tender mercy, for tender mercy will be demonstrated to you. What bliss you experience when your heart is pure, for then your eyes will be open to see more and more of God. How joyful you are when you make peace, for you will then be recognized as a true child of God. How enriched you are when persecuted for doing what is right, for then you experience the realm of heaven's kingdom. How blessed are you when people insult and persecute you and speak all kinds of cruel lies about you because of your love for me. So leap for joy since your heavenly reward is great. This blessing of happiness is for everyone. But what Jesus knows upon receiving and embracing this so good it has to be true blessing is that it will reshape our human hearts in the most profound yet mysterious of ways. And this transformation will bear fruit in how the met person, we're met by Jesus, how we will meet others meeting others right where they are, exactly where they are. It's a profound dance of blessing received, blessing given, when we go slow and dwell on where we just came from and who Jesus, who it is Jesus called to take the kingdom of heaven forward with. Consider the wider context we catch how Jesus doesn't begin in the standard way. He doesn't start with those who are already thinking they're on the top, but he starts with those who have needs, what it, who knows what it means to be hungry and thirsty and poor, and who, it, who knows what it means to mourn, and who knows what it means to be left out. Jesus meets all of humanity right where they are. He did this 2,000 years ago, and he's doing it today. He uses those words to uncover the pile of lies, of chaos, and of suffering in this world that we have buried and covered over, and that buries and covers the true spark that is full of joy in each person. This new foundation that Jesus established 
wasn't rooted in thou shalt nots, but rather it was established because you are met right where you are in love, go in love, and do likewise. This foundation understands the longing of our human hearts, that happiness. Jesus says to us, I see your desire. You long for your soul to be quenched, to find real and true happiness. Here is a better way, an everlasting way, a way of living that will bring such deep fulfillment and fullness of joy. Come and live blessed. Will you pray with me? God, we give you our hearts, Lord, just in confession of our desire to be on the throne of our hearts. God, we confess that and we give that to you. Lord, we repent and we turn to this new way, Father, this way of true happiness, of what you are inviting us to step into. God, it's going to change our lives and it's going to change our families and it'll change this church and our community, Father. God, give us strength, give us hearts of obedience to step into this invitation of what you are calling us to do. Thank you for giving us a better way. Thank you for knowing that we're human. Thank you for knowing we can't do it on our own. Thank you for trusting us to walk out your word, to trusting us and inviting us to be part of heaven brushing earth. We love you, Jesus. Amen.